Let's join together in a word of prayer. God, we pray that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We pray that you would help us know you as you are revealed to us uh, through your word. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. So let's start with a rhetorical question. How close have you been to a lightning strike? I've got 30 yards, and I can say that with some confidence because I know where I was and I know where the lightning struck. It was this summer, actually, one of these big storms that pushed through our area, and uh, Jennifer was gone someplace I don't know where, so I was just me, and I uh, heard the thunder start rumbling and come closer and closer, and then, boom, uh, lightning struck. And I thought it had hit my house. At actually hit my neighbor's house a mere 30 yards away. And that morning I looked out and I saw the scar mark where the lightning had hit the house. And uh, if you're that close, lightning is, uh, it's, it's an experience. It's the thunder is almost instantaneous, just a tremendous clap. The, the, br- the light almost looks yellow, not, not white as you, when you see it from a distance. I start with that question of how close have you have been to lightning because our story out of the Gospels this morning describe a lightning strike. Now that's not, that is not hyperbole, uh, the same words that are used to describe lightning as uh, Jesus appeared dazzling white, his clothes gl- uh, glowed. These are the same words that would, are used to describe lightning. So on that Mount of Transfiguration, the story that we're going to look at tonight, we're looking at a lightning strike. One commentator noted this passage and said, Jesus, as he is revealed here, does more than stir the brain, and he does more than make the tongue wag. And I'll tell you what, if you're that close to a lightning strike, that's exactly right. When the lightning strikes, you don't think, huh, that was a large electrical discharge in the atmosphere. No, it's a... It does more than make the tongue wag or brain stir. It's an experience. I bet some of you have had that experience of being close to lightning. Boom. Startling, arresting. So this morning, I want to look at how Jesus is revealed in this passage. I want to look at this lightning strike. I want to ask three questions for us. That's a great passage that we began with in 2 Corinthians, uh, that we would display the truth in clear ways and not in underhand, but speak clearly and directly, if you noted that. For, and that's what we want to do as we look to God's word. We want to think clearly and speak plainly of what is God's word saying to us. So three questions are going to help us think about this passage. First is a question of who. Who is this uh, that's portrayed here? Second question of why is it important that we know Jesus as he's being portrayed here. If I could clarify that question a little bit, the Gospels portray Jesus in any number of ways. The Gospels portray Jesus as the, the infant, uh, the teacher. Uh, the Gospels portray Jesus as a man of sorrows, uh, bearing the weight of sin on the cross. There are, the, there, there are many portrayals of Christ, but here we have a very special Uh, portrayal of Christ. One that's repeated in each of the Gospels. So clearly the the Gospel writers want us to know something about this person that is revealed here. So not just how do we, uh, why is it important that we know Christ, but why is it important we know this one, the one that's revealed here? And the third question is a question of how. How can you know this person that's revealed here? So who, why, how? Let's jump right in. The first question, who is this? 
So in an Anglican church, we follow what's called a liturgical calendar, and that's a helpful tool for some. We are in a season of, who knows it, epiphany. All right? Epiphany is a season that lasts uh, from the end of Christmas to right about now. And there's one question that dominates the season of epiphany, and that's the question of who is this? Of course, in reference to, to Jesus. And epiphany, you know, that means it's an aha moment, right? Well, the question that Epiphany is addressing is, who is this, uh, this person? Who is Jesus? And so some of the readings of Epiphany season are always fairly predictable. Jesus' first miracle. Jesus' first sermon. Why? Because uh, we're being introduced to Jesus. And the season of Epiphany ends today at what's called the Feast of Transfiguration. And this is the period at the end of the sentence. The Gospel writer Luke is doing all within his literary power to underscore this is who Jesus is. He's someone special. He is someone unique. He is someone that he's like a lightning strike. I just want to look at a few things that Luke uh, does to inform us of how important Jesus is. Is and we could. There are this passage is full of Old Testament references and allusions that we're not. We're just going to scratch the surface. There's a few things that uh, a few uh, elements in the story that point to the uniqueness of Jesus. First is well, we touched on it already. He glows. He he he's emanating light. Uh, he. The passage says his 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 clothes glow with a glowing dazzling, white. I think we're supposed to infer that not just his clothes, but he was glowing with a dazzling light. Now, if you were here a couple of months ago, I, I preached a sermon on the church is supposed to glow too. I don't know if anyone else remembers my sermons. I do. <laughs> and, and, and I thought it was a great point. I don't know if you appreciate it as much as me, but uh, how do Christians glow? Christians glow, but we glow for a different reason. Remember, there's a fancy Latin phrase, we grow, we glow, we shine like the moon shines, not moonshine. We shine like the moon shines. Uh, the fancy Latin word was the mysterium lunae which means the mystery of the moon. We shine like the moon shines. How does, it, how does the moon shine? Well, the moon doesn't shine. The moon reflects light. Uh, the moon shines because it has a clear, unfettered access to the sun, and if it does, then it shines, and therefore Christians shine. Moses, for instance, shone. Why did Moses shine? Because Moses was talking to God, and his face shone. And the same thing is true for you and me. We shine as we uh, draw near to Christ. But you notice that Jesus is not shining with a reflected light. Jesus is shining in and of himself. Uh, one gospel writer says that in him was light, and that light was the life of men. He is not like anyone else. He doesn't reflect light. He emanates it. Point number one. Point number two, the company he keeps, Moses and Elijah. Uh, now, commentators sort of go back and forth about the significance of these two people. Uh, why these two? Why not other two? What is held in common by all is that these two are really important. These are two very significant heroes of the Old Testament. And you know Peter's question? Peter, the enthusiastic disciple who's always first with his hand in the air, Peter says, ooh, I've got a great idea. We should make a party. You should, we should make a couple of tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, right? You're a hero, they're a hero, it'll be a big, it'll be, it'll be great. Well, you'll note that that is not what happens. They don't build tents. Instead, there's a voice from heaven that singles out not all three, but one, 
one person. And so this is my son. There's no reference to Moses. There's no reference to Elijah. And this is likely a corrective. In other words, Jesus is not one of many. He's not one, Moses a prophet, Elijah a prophet, Jesus a prophet. No. Moses a hero, Jesus a hero. Or Moses a hero, Elijah a hero, Jesus is a hero. No. Jesus is the, the one that the prophets point to. Right? He is the hero of which all the other heroes are just shadows. He's not one amongst many, but he is the one that is above all. Do you see that? Again, Luke is telling us that here is someone really important. He's not one along amongst a long chain, but he is one that is above all. The third uh, hint that Luke gives us to the supremacy, to note the importance of Christ, are the three words that come from the cloud. Again, each one of these, we can only scratch the surface, but each one of these is just pregnant with meaning. This is my son. The voice from the cloud being the voice of God identifies Jesus as having a special relationship like a son to a father. This is my chosen one, likely a reference to uh, the prophet Isaiah, a chosen servant who has a special role. Listen to him, not a title, but instead a reference to his unique authority. So three very important, three very staccato phrases that come one after another. Jesus has a special relationship to God like a son to a father. He is ordained for a special role. He is the chosen one. He is endowed with a special authority. Listen to him. The gospel writer Luke is... is is pulling out all the stops, all the literary stops to say this person here is like no other. He doesn't reflect light, he shines it. <laughs> he is not one among many, he's the one that's above all. And then these three phrases that follow. This is not Jesus as the infant crying in the night. We were introduced to that portrayal of Jesus, aren't we? But this is not... This is the same person, but this is a different image of that same person. This is not Christ, the man of sorrows. This is not the wise teacher. This is Christ in his glory. Christ as he truly is. Listen to what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said. This is, this is Christ, the man of God, radiant with splendor, clothed with rainbows, wrapped in light, crowned with the stars beneath his feet. And that is what they saw. I've been on a fast of J.R. Tolkien quotes. It's been about six months, so it's about time for another J.R. Tolkien quote. Uh, one of my favorite authors and a deeply committed Christian, uh, I, he must have wrote this story into his great fantasy trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. The setting of the story is uh, Gandalf, is the great hero, is thought to be passed away. And there's travelers wandering in the woods, and they see some old man dressed in a gray cloak who... Well, I'll pick up there. They looked, they beheld a bent figure moving slowly, not far away. It looked like an old beggar man walking wearily, leaning on a rough staff. Suddenly, the old man sprang to his feet and leapt to the top of a large rock. There he stood, grown suddenly tall, towering above them, his hood and his gray rags flung away, his garments shone. He lifted up his staff. Gandalf, they cried. They all gazed at him. His hair was white as snow in the sunshine, and gleaming white was his robe. The eyes were under his deep brows were like 
bright piercing as the rays of a sun. Power was in his hand. Beyond wonder and joy and fear, they stood. They found no words. And Gandalf wrapped himself back in his gray cloak. And it appeared as if the sun had gone behind the cloud. And he says to them, Now I come to you at the turn of the tide. I just have to imagine that Tolkien had this image of the transfiguration in his mind when he wrote that story that Gandalf comes now at the turn of the tide. And that leads us to our second question. Why is it important that we know this Christ, this person who's revealed here, Christ in glory? He comes to them at the turn of the tide. This is right smack dab in the middle of the Gospels. And the first question of the Gospels, the question of Epiphany is, who is this? The second question of the Gospels is, why is he here? What has he come to do? And this is the same in every Gospel. You'll find this story smack dab in the middle. And after this event, the story takes a decisive turn, and it takes a decisive turn for the worse. Uh, immediately following after this passage, you, one of my favorite verses, it says, Jesus turned his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, that place where he knows that he will experience suffering and loss and all the, all the indecencies that he encounters. But it says he turns his face like flint. You see, the road for Christ and therefore the road for the disciples is going about to get very, very nasty. And he, Jesus will be betrayed by his friends and Jesus will be abandoned by his companions and then uh, convicted in a kangaroo court and then strung up on a cross. And it's, it's going to get tough. And this moment of Christ revealed in his glory, in his natural element, is their assurance for the dark days to come. Why is it important that the disciples know Jesus as he is, as he's revealed here? Because the revelation of Christ's glory is their assurance for the dark days ahead, and the same is true for you and me. And so what's the season that follows Epiphany? Hand. Lent, there we go, Lent. Yeah, so in about three days, we're going to enter the season of Lent. Not yet. We still have, a, this is still Epiphany. We're still celebrating. So there's king cakes, which is a, a traditional way that uh, a celebration of Epiphany. So there's king cakes and Mardi Gras is a part of this uh, out in the reception area. But pretty soon we're going to be in the season of Lent. And Lent is that season in which we, traditionally, the, the discipline has been help me pick up my cross. Help me follow you on those dark days. One of my friends said that Lent is his favorite season of the church year. I asked him why. He said it's because the only se- it's the only season I get. It's the only season I can understand. Yeah, I get picking up your cross. That makes sense to me. Some of the other things I don't quite understand, but Lent is a season that I can, I can appreciate. We must know Jesus as he is here, revealed in his glory for dark days ahead. And of course, I'm not referring to a 40-day period in which you give up chocolate. I'm referring to the season of Lent, which is most of our lives. Life is not easy. Following Jesus is not easy. Sometimes life feels like Lent. And we need to be reassured of Christ's goodness for those times when he does not seem good. 
And there are those times. We need to be reassured of the power of Christ for those times when he does not seem powerful. And there are those times in each one of our lives. We need to be reassured of the glory of Christ for those times when following him is anything but glorious. And there we all have plenty of those times. We need to see, I need, you need to see Christ in his glory to strengthen you, to strengthen me, like it strengthened those disciples for the dark days ahead. Which leads to our third and final question, how? How can you see Christ in his glory? Not the teacher, not the infant, not the man of sorrows, but how can you and I experience this Christ, this lightning strike? I wish I could tell you. I think if we looked at our passage, we would find it very unhelpful. You'll know what the disciples were doing. They were sleeping. And they woke up, and voila, Christ was in his glory. The application for us is, therefore, not you should sleep in church. And when you wake up, that would be the wrong application. But let's just tease out this... uh, How do you get struck by lightning? Now, if you you went to a meteorologist and said, sir, ma'am, help me, how how can I get struck by lightning? That meteorologist would say, well, why do you want to be struck by lightning? You say, I have my own reasons, just tell me, how can I be struck by lightning? That meteorologist would say, well, look, friend, lightning, you can't put lightning in a bottle. You can't say, take two of these and call me in the morning. Lightning is its own thing. I can tell you how not to be struck by lightning. Like don't swim when there's a storm. Don't hold a flagpole. Don't, you know, there's a, there's a litany of things that you're not supposed to do. And if you don't do those things, then you probably are not going to be struck by lightning. I feel like the same thing is true for me. I can tell you how not to be struck by lightning. I can tell you how you will never experience Christ this way. Be a very intermittent worshiper at church. Don't read your Bible. Pray superficially. Stay away from the poor and the vulnerable. Uh, try to harden that voice of conscience through which God leads us. Do those things, and I can pretty well guarantee you're safe. You'll never be struck by lightning. I think that meteorologists have pushed, you'd say, look, if you do some practices long enough and habitually enough, eventually you're going to get struck. And I'd say the same thing is true for you and me. A certain Uh, practices of life, worship, study, prayer, service to the vulnerable, uh, keeping a soft heart to the things of God. Do these things, and I bet eventually you're going to get struck. I believe it. It's happened to me. We have a prayer service every Tuesday. There's a little group that meets at noon, and you're welcome to come. Uh, It's about five or ten of us that gather. We'll tend to be a very generous number. Uh, Five of us that gather for prayer. uh, And we have a short short homily. uh, Celebrate the Eucharist and then a time of prayer. And what we pray for is now. What we pray for is this service. uh, More than anything else. What we pray is that you and I, that Christ would be present here in a special way and in a unique way. That we, I don't use language of a lightning strike, but that's exactly what I'm praying for. That Christ would be present, that we would have at least a taste of lightning. Because the one thing that you and I need, the one thing this church needs more than any, the one experience, I should say, the one experience that we need 
is to experience Christ as he is. Christ in his glory. Because we need strength for the dark days ahead, don't we? Speaking of dark days ahead, so, so someone is entering dark days right now. Please rise. Let's affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.